Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. Well, good morning. Welcome to FaithBridge. Whether you're on the Klein campus, in the Woodlands, or coming to us online, we are so glad you've chosen to worship with us today. So we have been resolving for more around here lately. Specifically, we've been resolving for more in our spiritual lives. We've been getting back to the basics, looking at the spiritual disciplines that Christians have practiced for thousands of years. Daily Bible reading, daily prayer, developing a generous heart, and of course being involved in community so that we can be supported and encouraged as we seek to practice these disciplines and grow in our discipleship. That's, that's the point of it all, is to grow in our relationship with Jesus. Pastor Ken got the ball rolling back on January the 8th when he talked to us about how to read the Bible. And he introduced to us the SOAP method, which I know many of you have picked up and are using. Today, I want to talk to you about why we read the Bible. And I think this is probably a good time for this message because uh, particularly those of you who are using the SOAP method, right about now you are slogging your way through the book of Leviticus. (laughs) And I would be willing to bet more than one of you have probably sat back and asked, now why am I doing this again? Um, Truth be told, we're a mixed bag when it comes to our motives for reading the Bible. Some good some not so good. Some actually do not allow us to read the Bible the way God intended for it to be read. I mean, he is the author after all. And so he gets to decide, this is why I want you to read it. This is how it should be read. But sometimes we can miss that. So we want to talk today about why we do it. What, what are the reasons and the reasons that will facilitate what God wants to accomplish as we do so? We're going to be looking at a number of different passages along the way. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisle. They'll be glad to give you one. That can be yours to keep. If you need it, please consider that a gift from FaithBridge to you. Before we jump into the message, uh, let's take a minute and pray together. Father, today our hearts are especially grateful for the gift of your word. It's a marvelous thing that you compiled this book for us to read and learn who you are, become the men and women that you created us to be, to know your son, Jesus. We pray now that as we turn our attention to various portions of your word, your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and guide us into all truth. We offer our prayer in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So when it comes to Bible reading and Bible study, one of my all-time favorite resources is Dr. Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson. Some of you may have heard his name. He is a pastor, seminary professor, 
author, uh, Bible translator. If you've ever read the message version of the Bible, Dr. Peterson translated all of that. Just an incredible accomplishment. Several years ago, he wrote a book about how to approach the Bible. What should be our frame of mind? What, what should we be expecting as we come to the Bible? The name of the book that he wrote is called Eat This Book, and I highly recommend it to you. It's, it'll be a wonderful addition to your library of Bible resources. The central thesis of the book is this. God did not leave you in charge of shaping your soul. God did not leave you in charge of shaping your soul. That is something that he reserves for himself. Now, Dr. Peterson understands that while this is an easy concept to understand, it is a difficult one to implement because from the time we can breathe, our culture is telling us we know what is best. We know what we want, what we need, our, our feelings influence the decisions that we are going to make, and we are a highly individualistic culture, and so we are the arbiters of what is right, what is good, what is best. However, uh, history would show that we've got a pretty poor track record when it comes to knowing what is best for ourselves. Now, maybe we do a pretty good job when it comes to things like what kind of clothes we'll wear or what kind of car we may buy, but when it comes to the shaping of our souls, we've got a terrible track record. I mean, the very fact that Jesus had to come and rescue our souls should be proof enough that we don't know what we're doing when it comes to the shaping, the forming, the managing of this part of our being that is eternal that part of us that is going to last forever. That's why God says, I'll be in charge of that. Thank you very much. I know what is best for you. Now, if we accept that proposition, that God knows what's best when it comes to the shaping of our souls, then that is going to greatly influence why we read the Bible. Uh, there will be uh, some motivations, some reasons for reading the Bible that will enhance and accelerate what God is trying to do in our lives. But there will be other approaches to the Bible that will actually get in the way and hinder what God is trying to accomplish in our lives. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, well, gosh, I never knew there was a, a wrong reason to read the Bible, but in fact, there are some. And we're going to talk about those. We're going to talk about the wrong motives for reading and the right motives. We'll start with the wrong ones first, just to sort of clear the deck, if you will. Two of the most common that I have observed uh, in the lives of other people and in my own life from time to time, frankly, one of those is what I call the consumer approach to the Bible, the consumer approach. Now, we start with the assumption that uh, we know what is best. And so like a consumer, we're going to come to the Bible and we're going to begin to pick and choose what is best for us in this book. We're going to look for what is relevant. We're going to look for what is inspiring. We're going to look for what is helpful. Now, the danger here is that if we 
continually approach the Bible this way, we are going to end up with what Jen Wilkin calls an Instagram version of the Bible. Now, Instagram, I'm sure you probably know, is a social media platform that is designed, near as I can tell, for one thing and one thing only, and that is to show how great our lives really are. Only the best, only the good stuff makes it onto Instagram. And when we come to the Bible, picking and choosing and selecting only what we feel like is good for us, we're just looking for the best. Uh, Wilkin describes the Instagram version of the Bible this way. It comforts, but rarely convicts. It emotes, but rarely exhorts. It warms, but rarely warns. It promises, but rarely prompts. It moves, but does not mortify. It builds self-assurance, but balks at self-examination. Those who read uh, the Instagram version of the Bible are very excited about passages like Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you a future and a hope, not to harm you, but to prosper you. Who wouldn't like that? Wonderful news. But those very same people aren't as excited about passages, say, like Mark 8, 34. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know, self-denial just doesn't work with the whole Instagram thing. And crosses, no, that definitely would not fit within the Instagram borders of what is acceptable. A consumer approach starts with the supposition that, that we know what is best. And so we're just gonna come to this thing and whatever strikes our fancy, we'll take. And whatever doesn't, well, we'll just kind of pretend like that isn't there. And that's a terrible reason to read the Bible. Another wrong reason to read the Bible is what I call the magician's approach. And as the name implies, uh, this approach assumes that we can manipulate this book, that it, it has power and it's capable of doing things and accomplishing things. And so we can take this and use it for our own purposes. We can bring about the things that we need and that we want, that we deem best as we claim the promises of this book. Just this week, I was speaking with a lady who uh, very candidly, honestly confessed that that had been her approach to the Bible in the past. Years ago, uh, her husband had zero interest in church and spiritual things. I mean, none. And it created a tremendous amount of pain and conflict in their home. Not just between the two of them, but also with the kids as well. And uh, this wasn't working for her. And so by golly, she decided one day, I, I'm, I'm taking up the sword of the Lord. And I'm going to make a difference here. I'm going to claim these promises and I'm going to use the word of God. After all, it will not return to him void. And I am going to straighten my husband out. Well, what she discovered was that uh, God had an agenda in all of that. And his agenda was to straighten her out first. 
she told me she was reading in Romans chapter five and came across these words. But we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Her agenda was to straighten out her husband and to get him to be a churchgoer and to get him to be a believer. God's agenda was to help her understand that he had something he wanted to do in her heart. He wanted to build some perseverance and some character and some hope in the midst of a very, very difficult situation. Consumer approach, magician's approach, I'm sure there are probably others. They are very poor reasons to read the Bible. And God has a better idea. God has a better notion. As the author, he had a specific purpose in mind for making this book available to us. God wants us to read the Bible so that he can transform us and conform us to the image of his son, Jesus. God wants us to read the Bible so that he can transform us and conform us to the image of his son, Jesus. That's what God is about in and through that book. And if we accept that proposition, that God is wanting to do something in my heart to make me more like Jesus, I'm not going to come to the Bible picking and choosing, neither am I going to come at it as something I can manipulate, but rather I'm going to come to it submissively, openly, willing to receive whatever it is that God has for me along the way, trusting that he will use this book to accomplish his purposes in my life. So how does he do that? How does he use the book to transform us? Well, to guide our thinking, I want us to look at a passage from 2 Timothy. That's toward the end of the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter three. Timothy was a protege of the apostle Paul. This is the second of two letters that Paul wrote to him. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, preparing God's servant thoroughly for good works. When we understand that the Bible is God's book and that God has an agenda that precedes anything that we could bring to it. We give God the opportunity to do what he wants to do in our lives. And it starts with the recognition that God is in fact the author of that book. All scripture is God breathed. He wrote it. He wrote every single bit of it. And as a result, he can use all of it and any part of it to speak into our lives. We don't have to take on the responsibility of picking and choosing because God knows what is best for us. And since he put all of this out there, he can use whatever he wants to, to speak into our lives. We human beings, I've noticed, uh, 
tend to define uh, our own reality. We get this notion that our experience, our perspective, our understanding of life, now that, that's reality. And the goal is to get God to come down and to participate in our reality so that things will go well for us and so that God will be pleased. But in fact, just the opposite is true. God is the one who defines reality and he invites us to come and participate in his reality. And he does that in and through this book. And being in God's reality is the best and the safest place we can possibly be. If you've ever been on a mission trip to another country, you will be aware that one of the first things you learn is that when the airplane lands in that country, your identity as an American no longer defines your reality. You are now living in the reality of that country, that culture, those customs. And to try to bring your American reality to bear on what's happening in that situation is futile and harmful in some circumstances. I remember several years ago, I was on a mission trip to Honduras, and on the very first day, our hosts down there, Ron and Shelly, sat us all down and began to give us an orientation to life in Honduras. And in the orientation, she introduced us to Marco. Marco was going to be our van driver, haul us all around to the various places we would be going. But not only would he be our van driver, Shelley said, he will also be your eyes and your ears. Because Marco is a native Honduran. And he will see things and he will hear things and he will understand things that your American eyes and ears will completely miss. Therefore, Marco is to be obeyed at all times, no questions asked. Does everyone understand this? And she got a commitment from every single person on our team that they would obey Marco no matter what. Otherwise, she said, we might as well call this whole thing off right now. And it wasn't a big ego trip for Marco, it was for our safety. It was to protect us from what we did not know about Honduran culture, which can be a dangerous place. And thank goodness Ron and Shelley had the foresight to do that because long about the middle of the week, uh, we took a break from our work and decided to go to a community soccer game. When we got there, uh, the crowd was already gathering. The, the makeshift bleachers were beginning to fill up. The teams were out on the field warming up. And we had probably been there five, 10 minutes at the most. We hadn't even made it to our seats when suddenly Marco in the most animated fashion begins to tell all of us to get back in the van, get in the van, get in the van, get in the van. You know, there's always one on every trip. Well, why do we need to get in the van? Get in the van. <laughs> we get in the van and we take off, you know, like it's the Daytona 500. There's a little grumbling and a little puzzlement about what in the world's going on. When Marco got out of the van, he looked to his left, and coming down the road was a gang, a gang that he used to be a part of. And he looked to his right, and coming down from the opposite direction was another gang. 
their sworn enemies. And he knew what was going to transpire in a matter of minutes, that the soccer game was not going to happen. What was going to happen was a brawl, a gang fight. And what he needed to do was to get these silly gringos out of there <laughs> as quickly as he could. Thank goodness we were living in Marco's reality. We learned later that there was in fact a brawl, that people were hurt, people were even stabbed. So thankful we had his eyes and ears. When we understand that all of scripture is God, is God breathed, that he's the author, and that we are stepping then into his reality, we can draw comfort from that. We can be at peace with that because God understands reality in a way that we never ever could possibly understand. And by submitting ourselves to this book, we are in the best, safest place we could possibly be so that he can begin to do the work of transforming us and conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus. So how does he do that? Well, Paul mentions two ways in this passage. First of all, he talks about how God addresses the inside. God gets after who we are at the very core of our being. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's God's goal, to make us righteous people. Now, righteousness, admittedly, has, uh, as a word, has fallen on hard times here in the 20th, 21st century. Uh, typically, people hear the word righteous and they immediately think of self-righteous, a spiritual snob. Or perhaps if they're a Disney fan, they think of surfer dude turtles, you know, righteous, righteous. N neither one of those apply here. What Paul is getting at is the desire God has to produce the character of Jesus within each one of us. That in all of our ways, all of our thoughts, our speech, our behavior, we will reflect the character of Jesus. As we submit ourselves to the teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training of Scripture, we increasingly become like Jesus. Now, I will be the first to admit there is a mystery to that. I cannot give you the precise mechanics as to how God can take the words of this book and bring about such deep formative change within each one of us, but I know that he does because I've experienced it myself. Before I became a Christian, I ran with a group of guys who basically had three priorities in life, to party and to party and to party. And we could not have cared less about righteousness. It was nowhere on our radar. But thanks be to God, in the midst of that mess, and it was a mess, he reached down and he saved me. He brought a man into my life who introduced me to Jesus and for an entire year discipled me. And throughout that year, he led me through the whole scriptures. We read the Bible from cover to cover. And I remember about eight or nine months into the process, reading in the book of Romans one day, chapter 13, Paul wrote, the night is nearly over. 
The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. I remember reading that passage and thinking to myself, Eight, nine months ago, the only thing I thought about was how to gratify the desires of the flesh. But I don't think about that anymore. And it's not that I'm just not doing those things anymore. I really don't want to do them anymore. Something about me has changed. My priorities have changed. My affections have changed. Instead of thinking about how to gratify the desires of the flesh, I'm now thinking about how to please Jesus how to love him and serve him better. Now, how exactly did that happen? Part of it is a mystery, I will readily confess. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the teaching and the rebuking and the correcting and the training I received from God's word began to change me from the inside out. So God starts conforming us to the image of his son by working on the inside. He then begins to shift to the outside. He starts to work on our behavior. He starts to work on the external expression of who we are on the inside. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're being changed on the inside so that we can behave differently on the outside. We are equipped for good works. It's been my observation that the phrase good works for most people typically is associated with ministry type activities. The things that you would do at church or the things that you would do on a mission trip. But really Paul uses the phrase good works in a much more inclusive fashion. He's not only talking about ministry, he's also talking about the day-to-day, mundane, everyday sort of activities that we live in most of the time. In fact, I think how we live in the everyday, how we live in the mundane is a much better gauge really of how we're being changed on the inside because anybody can slap on a smile for ministry. Anybody can adopt a good attitude for a mission trip, but it's a different matter altogether when we're talking about everyday life. Several weeks ago, I was uh, looking at my calendar and lo and behold, there before me, shining like a diamond, was a free Saturday. (laughs) I, I almost couldn't, I had to look at it twice. I mean, there was nothing there. I didn't have to write a sermon. I wasn't going on a mission trip. I didn't have anything going on up here. Apparently, there was nothing going on at home either. I mean, it was a free day. And I began to daydream 
about how I was going to spend that free day. Maybe I would finish a painting that I had started a while back. Maybe I'd go get started on a woodworking project. Uh, maybe I'd read a book, watch TV, take a nap. Maybe I wouldn't do anything at all. After all, it is a free day. I went to bed that night. And I remember laying my head on the pillow, just rejoicing, thanking God. Because tomorrow was going to be a free day. Alas, it was not to be. <laughs> the next morning, uh, as Becky and I were having coffee at the breakfast table, she said, um, honey, um, in a few hours, Vivian has got this thing over in another part of town. Uh, it'd really be helpful to me if you could take her to that. Okay. And then a little later in the day, Adeline uh, needs to come home from a spend the night party she's been to. Could you please go over and pick her up? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then this project we've got going on here, we really need to finish it. I, I'd be so grateful if we could both just jump in and do it. Okay. And I wish, I really wish, I could tell you, I just leapt up from the table and said, absolutely, honey, tell me what else can I do for you? <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> Instead, I let out a big sigh. And through clenched, grinding teeth, I said, sure, honey, I can do that. And then it got worse. <laughs> she said, Dan, I wish when I asked you to help around the house, oh, wow. <laughs> some of you know where I'm going with this, don't you? <laughs> I, I wish when I asked you to help around the house, you would do so with a happy heart. I mean, what, what kind of example are you setting for the girls? And besides, why, why do you get a free day? I mean, who came down from heaven and said, this is your free... I'm not having a free day today. Why are you feeling so put upon? And I just felt so much better after she explained it to me. <laughs> well, I hadn't had my quiet time yet that day. I decided that was a good time. <laughs> so I went to our prayer closet thing where we have our quiet times. And I vented my spleen to the Lord like, Lord, this is so not fair. I mean, everybody wants a piece of me everywhere I go. The church, at home, I can't even go out in public. Somebody's wanting something from me. And after all, you're really big on the Sabbath, right? Well, this was going to be my Sabbath day. I'm just telling you, trying to be obedient here. 
and I don't buy that business about the happy heart. <laughs> She's always wanting me to be emotionally available. Well, baby, here it is. <laughs> I am not happy. Crickets. Well, I decided to turn to my reading for the day in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. I just raised the white flag. <laughs> there was really, uh, honestly, nothing left for me to do but to, um, to repent, to own that I had been selfish and that I was being selfish. And I had to seek forgiveness from the Lord and I had to go and seek forgiveness from my wife. And by his grace and by her encouragement, I was able then to serve with a happy heart. If I had come at the Bible as a consumer or a magician using the Bible for my own purposes, I probably would have read, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. There you go. God had something else to say in the shaping and in the molding of my heart, transforming me and conforming me to the image of his son, Jesus. So why do we read the Bible? Well, there's lots of reasons, good ones and bad ones. But I think there's an even better question. Why does God want us to read the Bible? so he can transform us and conform us to the image of his son. Let's pray together. Father, we confess to you our mishandling of your word. Sometimes we get over familiar with it. and take your truths for granted. Sometimes we ignore it because we don't want to be bothered. Other times we try to use it for our own purposes. Forgive us, Lord. And give to us the grace we need to come before your word humbly and submissively, willing to receive whatever it is you have for us, even if it is difficult and painful because sometimes growth can be painful. And yet we know you are always working for our good. Thank you for loving us enough that you would send us both a written word and the living word, your son, Jesus. 
And it's in his name we offer this prayer. Amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Hello and welcome to Postscript. My name is Adam McIntyre and I'm joined today by Pastor Dan Slagle, who just preached a sermon answering the question, why do we read the Bible? Dan, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. So the first question, we're just going to jump right in. Uh, this person wrote in, wanted to know, what do you think is, well, they wanted to know, what is the most accurate translation? But that can have a, a lot of different answers. So if you want to try to answer that, uh, or if you want to answer what are some of your favorites? What are some to avoid if you know of any? Sure. Well, I think it's helpful to point out that generally speaking, there are two different types of translations out there. There is more of your word for word, sort of taking from the original languages and making as close a translation as you can. Right. And then there are what are called dynamic translations, which try to capture the, the gist or right. the spirit. Uh, examples of the former would be the NIV or the NASB or the ESV. Uh, examples of the latter would be um, the Living Translation, the New Living Translation. The message probably is a hybrid of, I mean, Dr. Peterson's a smart guy, but uh, I'm willing to bet there's enough dynamism in there. Um, for my own personal reading, uh, I read out of the NIV, but not because I think it's superior to the others. It's just the one that I've read. Right. Yeah. So a lot of times it's it's one that you uh, have a, a certain familiar, familiarity yeah. with and yeah, you're comfortable exactly. with it and, and things like that. Yeah. And, uh, and so another person wrote in, um, referring to your 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16 through 17 passage that you use. Um, and in that passage, Paul tells Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed. Right. Um, and, uh, and then a lot of times we as Christians now use that to talk about how the New Testament um, is also mm -hmm. God-breathed, it's inspired. Mm -hmm. um, however, at the time that Paul was writing this to Timothy, there was no such thing as the New Testament yet. Right. Um, so this person wrote in and said, surely Paul didn't mean the New Testament. Um, so how can we read Paul's words that he wrote to Timothy and still know that it applies to the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. Right. Well, I, I would agree that he was not referring to the New Testament specifically when he wrote those words. It, right. it didn't exist. Right. But he was referring, I think, to all writings that were deemed Scripture and would be mm -hmm. deemed Scripture, th though he himself had no idea that... Sure his writings would fall into that category. I think you need to step back from the immediate context that he's writing in and sort of look at the uh, span of time uh, involving what's called the canonization of the Bible, the, the selection of the books that would eventually become our Bible. And when you can sort of step back and, and see the whole process, which was quite a lengthy one, yeah. involving a lot of argument and a lot of prayer, it, uh, I think, doesn't seem so far-fetched that something Paul uh, wrote at a specific point in time would later be considered a part of the canon. Right. If you can look at it that way, I, 
I think it's perfectly legitimate. Sure, absolutely. And then, um, if you would, I would like for you to uh, to kind of go into the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, and you talked about how Scripture is um, there to transform us and mm-hmm. to conform us into the likeness of of Christ. And so, someone wrote in and asked, "Well, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in that transformation? In that um, in the conformity?" Right. To, to likeness of Christ. Right. Well, Jesus was clear that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher when it came to Scripture. He would be the one who would guide us into all truth. And He is the one who actually facilitates our sanctification. That, that's part of His role as the third member of the Trinity. So when I said in the sermon, I can't give you the precise mechanics uh, of what happened in my transformation I was not uh, thereby excluding the role or the work of the Holy Spirit. I was simply uh, speaking to the fact that at one point in time, I had one set of priorities and a few months later, a very different. Even if I limited my uh, sermon to the work of the Holy Spirit, I still couldn't tell you exactly how he sure. does it. Yeah. You know, there, there is mystery to that. Absolutely. But without question, he, he is involved absolutely in a central way right. in every person's transformation. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, John Calvin says, you know, uh, without the Spirit, the Word can do nothing. Yeah. Uh, we, the, it's just words on a page at that point without the power of the Spirit yeah. to transform and, and even our own faith is a gift sure. of the Spirit. Um, I'll even so, go with Calvin on that one. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Well, Pastor Dan, thank you so much uh, for being here. And thank you all for tuning in. We will see you all next time. Thanks for joining us for PostScript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org slash postscript.